0: This week, I have an exciting episode for you where I'm talking to someone who has struggled with getting diagnosed with PCOS and simultaneously with type 2 diabetes, struggled with access to care for PCOS, and struggled with trying all of the diets throughout the years. Unlike a lot of women with PCOS, she actually got pregnant pretty easily but had a missed miscarriage and is now pregnant for the second time and dealing with all of the emotions around a pregnancy after a loss. Stephanie B is living her lifelong dream of serving her community and has worked in the nonprofit and government sector for over 10 years. She holds a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science from UMass Amherst, a Master of Science in Public Affairs from UMass Boston and a grant writing certificate from the University of Southern Maine. Personally, Stephanie has been a PCOS patient for over 10 years with a history of diabetes. She lives in Western Mass with her husband and dog, and they are currently expecting their first child this spring. Let's get started. Welcome to Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you're a busy woman struggling with hormonal issues like PCOS, fertility struggles, and other hormone imbalances, and you feel like you're the boss of your life in every area but your hormones, then you're in the right place. I'm your host, Melissa groves Azero, integrative women's health dietitian, coffee lover, cat lady, all black wearing, former New York City advertising exec turned professional period fairy. It's my mission to be the no BS, hormone nutrition education resource for smart women struggling with hormone imbalances so you can have regular symptom-free periods and optimize your fertility naturally. I'm here to share real, actionable, science-based tips you can use to get real results without cutting out foods, spending hours in the gym or meal prepping, and without losing sleep, because we're all about balance here at The Hormone Dietitian, and I am so glad you're here. Let's get started. Hey,
1: Stephanie. Why don't you?
0: Hey,
1: hey! So glad to have you here. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm super excited to talk to you about about your journey. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you were first diagnosed with PCOS?
1: Sure. You know, looking back, knowing what I know now about PCOS, I feel like it has impacted me my entire life. Like I I look back at in elementary school, I had GI issues. I went to a ton of specialists. None of them could figure out what was wrong with me. They, you know, tried to say that I had anxiety, that I had heartburn, I had all these things and I was kind of like a medical mystery of why I had an upset stomach for, you know, most of middle or elementary school. And then as I moved into middle school, I had tons of weight gain, like around the time of puberty, I had always been kind of like a bigger kid. But especially in middle school, I was gaining tons of weight. And I grew up in a middle class family, you know, we had access to good food. And my mom was really you know, aware of feeding me fruits and vegetables. And I wasn't eating like a ton of processed things. And it was just kind of a mystery to her of why I was gaining so much weight so quickly when I was eating pretty much the same thing that everyone else was eating. And even in middle school, I had a doctor suggest to my mom to do the special K diet, which I don't know if you remember, but it was like that diet where it was special K cereal where it was like you replace i think two meals with special k so you know not the best thing to be telling like a 12 or 13 year old girl to just eat cereal for her meals and a pediatrician even like suggested that i was sneaking food at night when my mom you know didn't know that i was like hiding food in my room because no one could figure out why i was gaining weight so quickly and so once i you know got to puberty. And once I got my period, it was really inconsistent. Like I think I was probably getting two to three periods a year. And again, my mom was bringing me to the doctors and was like, this doesn't seem right. And of course, they just chalked it up to me being obese, telling my mom that I needed to lose weight. And so that was kind of always a constant battle too of, you know, I. I wasn't having a consistent period. And when I was having a period, they were awful. They were really heavy. And just, I had a ton of symptoms along with my periods. And so finally, after kind of years and years and years of my mom pushing that this wasn't normal or, you know, that I was having all of these symptoms that weren't adding up, I finally was able to see a new OBGYN who had said, you know, there's this thing called PCOS. And we're seeing it in, in young women now. And we don't know a whole lot about it. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna test you for it. It's just a simple blood test. I'm also going to test you for diabetes, because we're finding that type two diabetes is kind of going hand in hand with this PCOS. And kind of all throughout middle school and high school, I was pre diabetic. But my doctors kind of followed up with it inconsistently. It was just kind of something that was mentioned at my appointments, but I don't really remember ever being given any guidance on what to do for pre-diabetes other than, hey, you should try all of these diets, you know, and lose weight. And so finally, when I was 21, I was diagnosed with PCOS and I was also diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And with the type two diabetes, it was like, oh, you know, we're gonna send you to an endocrinologist. There's gonna be a registered dietitian there. You're gonna, you know, track your blood sugars. You're gonna go on medication. And for PCLS, it was just kind of like, yeah, you have this and that's why you're not getting your period. You know, we'll try switching your birth control. And oh, and you know, when you wanna have kids, you probably aren't going to be able to have them naturally, you know, that it was like there was no information and the information that I got was really scary to a 21-year-old that wasn't even thinking about kids at the time to, you know, hear, "Oh yeah, and by the way, you probably can't have kids, but we're not going to give you any more information about it." So, that was kind of like my initial introduction to PCOS and this was back in 2010. So, you know, we had the internet, but it wasn't like it is today where, you know, you go on Instagram and you, you find information. It was just kind of like, you, you have this and, you know, come back when you want to get pregnant. That's, you know, that's something that we hear all the time from people with PCOS of it's only a problem when it comes to fertility was really the messaging around it. It's
0: so crazy because I mean, they knew enough to know that the type two diabetes was connected to the PCOS, but not enough to say like,
1: okay, this is how we address all of it, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. It really was like, just here's this information dump and, you know, come back. Here's, here's some new birth control. (laughs) And even like the endocrinologist was kind of like, yeah, you know, PCOS, but we really need to treat the type two diabetes and type two diabetes is serious, you know, it should be treated, but there was really no, I remember going to the endocrinologist hoping that they would give me information about PCOS too. And there was basically no mention other than yet again, if you lose weight, you know, you can reverse your type two diabetes potentially. And we know that, or, you know, we quote unquote know that it might help with the PCOS.
0: It's also just so disturbing knowing what we know now about nutrition and blood sugar control. It's like, you know, especially diets like this, this, uh, slim fast diet, which I remember from college or the, you know, special K diet. I can't imagine A worse breakfast for someone with PCOS, you know, to eat like just refined carbs and minimal protein and, you know,
1: spike your blood sugar even more. That's the thing of, you know, now that I know what I know about insulin resistance and diabetes, it's like, of course I was hungry, you know, I'm spiking my blood sugar like crazy starving myself with these small meals and then, you know, getting mad at myself because I'm hungry. It's like, of course you're hungry. You're not eating anything.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it definitely was, you know, epidemic of the 90s and early 2000s to, really focus on that low fat diet and focus on calories, um, and limiting calories. I mean, I remember myself being a dance major and eating like a fat-free yogurt and an apple for lunch and then dancing for like eight hours and wondering (laughs) why I was starving, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Everything was like fat-free. And I remember- So I did Weight Watchers on and off. I did, you know, my fitness pal for counting calories and things like that. And I remember bringing measuring cups to the dining hall at college and like standing at the buffets and measuring, cupping, you know, my, my meals. It's just, it's crazy. But that was the message of it's your fault if you're gaining weight or your weight isn't where. You know, doctors think it should be. So here's, you know, all of these restrictions and all of these things that you should be doing.
0: Wow, that sounds so disordered now to be like
1: packing little cups and tablespoons with you. Oh, definitely. I definitely had disordered eating, and it's taken me years to get out of that mindset, and I still flip into it often because it's just in my kind of formative years where you're, you know, learning about your, your body image and your self-worth were so heavily focused on weight loss. And, you know, to my parents' credit, they were very much not that way. My mom would, you know, bring me to Weight Watchers and things like that when I was in high school, but because it was almost being medically recommended for her to do so. You know, it was like doctors were like, well, this diet didn't work. So here, try this one, you know, and, and it was like, well, if you want to get your diabetes under control, if you want to get your PCOS under control, then you have to lose weight. So it was like, at points that didn't even feel like it was because of my body image that I was trying to lose weight. But it was like, oh, well, if I want to, you know, live a normal life, then I need to lose weight, because that's what doctors are telling me.
0: Yeah, it's such a complicated message. But I mean, absolutely reinforced by society, especially at that time. I remember, you know, Teen Magazine used to be a thing when I was in middle school and high school, and they used to have this annual model contest where you would send in your pictures and they would pick you to be their, you know, find of the year. And I actually remember Tiffany Amber Thiessen from, um, from 90210, like the later years of 90210, she was actually one of those model picks, And I just remember like pouring over those images and all of them were like 5'11", 115 pounds. And it just sort of, put, you know, puts, puts it in your head that that's what you should be too, you know?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was all, like I mentioned, I was always the plus size girl of my friends. I was the one who, you know, like I remember for like homecoming and prom and everything like that in high school, going to the mall with my friends and being the fat friend that held their purses and their shoes while they tried on prom dresses because I didn't fit into the sizes that all of these stores had with with prom dresses. I had to go to like bridal shops or kind of like middle-aged stores to find my size. And that all, you know, I'd... I definitely at times was so focused on, oh, I need to lose weight because I need to look like my friends, you know, and I definitely was picked on and, you know, there was name calling and things like that all growing up because I was one of the plus size people. There wasn't a focus in marketing of inclusion of plus size bodies. It was all the very thin girls, you know, I I didn't really participate in sports not because I didn't like sports, but because there weren't any role models of plus size people in sports. Like I was like, oh, fat equals out of shape. So I'm not gonna, you know, go out for the basketball team because they're all thin. And if I'm plus size, then I can't be on the team. You know, I think social media is a double-edged sword now, where it can be harmful to self-image everyone kind of puts their highlight reel on social media. But I think it also has been beneficial to showing different size bodies, different, you know, ways of looking for young women where it's it's more normalized. And I think that it pushed a lot of companies into inclusive sizing, where it's not just, you know, extra small through large, when you go to a store, but that there's inclusive sizing for every size.
0: Yeah. When I was a teen, there was a store called 579 and that was like, those were the only sizes they carried. (laughs) So I can definitely, you know, imagine how, how difficult that must have been and how limiting in your, your options when you're, you're trying to shop. And I think. You know, the other other thing I really wanted to touch upon was that whole idea that exercise and fitness and sports equal weight loss or are only accessible for people in smaller bodies. And I think, you know, it's just a different different mindset that that we have about exercise now than we did then where, you know, we do see the cardiovascular benefits and the benefits on insulin resistance and the benefits on mood and just all of the ways that exercise is beneficial that are not at all tied to, you know, a game of who can burn the most calories, you know?
1: It took me such a long time to detach that mindset of I need to lose weight because I need to burn off. Calories like I was definitely the person at you know 21 22 years old that would go out all night with friends, eat pizza at the end of the night, and then be at the gym at 9 a.m. because I had to quote unquote work off what I did the night before, and that's just such a crazy mindset to have. But there is this culture in working out where it's like it needs to cancel out anything that you've eaten or done and so it took me a a very long time to to learn that movement doesn't have to be punishment it can be enjoyment it can be you know good for you in other ways that don't have anything to do with weight it can just be a fun activity that you do for yourself
0: Yeah. Even in New York city. And I, I love my old spinning instructor. Like I loved her classes. She was, you know, really traditionally trained in spinning. So no like weird arm movements or anything like that. She always had great soundtracks and this was like way before the Peloton age, you know, but every year she had a Turkey burner, uh, spin class that was three hours long. (laughs) And I think about that three now and hours <laughs> and I oh did it because I, I loved it. Like I loved her classes. It was, you know, it's very much like a party atmosphere and you're working hard. And like, to me, it was almost like meditation because when you're working your body so hard, it's like, it really kind of does successfully shut your brain off. It's really good for anxiety, but I just think about like, you know, the message that that sends too. It's like, oh, you can eat your Thanksgiving, but you have to burn it off
1: after. A holiday that centered around food and it's supposed to be about thankfulness and enjoying loved one's company. And it's like, oh, I have to, you know, burn this off. I definitely have done spin classes as well that were turkey burner classes. And I forget, I did one once that was like a New Year's Eve class, and I forget what they called it, but it was basically like, oh, you're going to be eating and drinking a lot for New Year's. So come burn off the calories before you, you know, ingest them.
0: I've definitely run those New Year's Day races where, you know, it's like, 7, 8 a.m. on New Year's Day and half the crowd is hung over and the other half is still drunk or still hasn't gone to bed yet from, from yeah. New Year's. Um, <laughs> but it was always like a 5k it was never, you know, anything really strenuous. Yeah, it's, it is. I, I think things are, it's it's actually still kind of hard to find fitness classes. I've found that don't include language around burning off your weekend or fitting in those jeans or, you know, messages like that. So you mentioned some of the diets that you had tried. Um, Were there other things that you tried, different weight loss plans or exercise regimens or medications?
1: Have you kind of been through the ringer on all of that too? You know, I mentioned Weight Watchers. I I did Weight Watchers before there were like apps and you know everything. It was like you got this little points booklet and you've got this little tracker. That's how long ago I began with Weight Watchers. And I would say that I probably did Weight Watchers on and off for 10 years. And I never made it to my quote unquote goal weight. I spent tons of money on their like shakes and snacks and you know, everything like that. I did slim fast. I know you had mentioned slim fast. I was absolutely miserable. I was a miserable person to be around. I knew that it was time to stop slim fast when I wanted to add chocolate syrup to it to make it taste better. (laughs) (laughs) I've done that. I dipped my toes in the South Beach diet, but I never really committed to that. As far as, you know, kind of exercise plans, I did Beachbody for a while. I bought a bunch of their workout DVDs. I bought their Shakeology, which was actually pretty good, but it's super expensive and loaded with not so great things. And that, I mean, you know, I've, I've known some people that love Beachbody and I'm all for if you find an exercise routine that you love and you can be consistent with, do it. But for me, it was chock full of that harmful messaging of being thin, and you only work out to get thin, and you know you kind of push through if you injure yourself or you know there's no rest days and things like that. And and I, I looked into being a coach at one point. I had friends that were coaches and yeah, so I, I got deep into the, the beach body world before I got out. And then as far as medications go, I was on metformin when I was a uh, type two diabetic. And I don't think I mentioned this kind of when I was talking about diabetes, but I did end up reversing my type two diagnosis through diet and exercise and using metformin. And so I, I ended up in 2012 reverse my diagnosis and then ever since then I've had really good A1Cs they check them pretty regularly I also don't think that I've mentioned that I'm I'm pregnant and so they've tested me for gestational diabetes twice just because of my history and my family history and having PCOS and my blood sugars have been good throughout my pregnancy as well but I I ended up going back on metformin for PCOS And I felt awful, I think, honestly, because my blood sugars had improved so much. After Mm -hmm. using it initially, I just felt so sick, I was getting big drops in my blood sugars, I didn't end up, you know, losing any weight or achieving whatever they had wanted to achieve, (laughs) with putting me back on metformin. And I know for some women with PCOS, it is effective for them. But for me, I just didn't have a really great reaction to it the second time around. And one thing that I also wanted to mention that I just think is just kind of ridiculous is so I've struggled with cystic acne, that's always been a PCOS symptom that from puberty to into my 30s. Now I've had on and off cystic acne. And so before my wedding, I went to my dermatologist and I was like, you know, I want to clean up my acne for my wedding. And she ended up putting me on antibiotics to clear up my (laughs) acne. And so I had to be careful. Like I remember going on my bachelorette and we went to Maine and I had to sit in like one of those sun tents because I couldn't (laughs) be in the sun for too long. I remember like, not really wanting to drink a whole lot at like the rehearsal dinner because I was afraid of what it would do to my antibiotics. Like, it's just crazy, you know, the the measures that we go to sometimes medically to address these symptoms of PCOS. Yeah, I think, you know, what what we don't really
0: talk about is the long-term impacts of some of those things, especially when it comes to the acne meds like Accutane or antibiotics. And I mean, knowing what you know now about how the gut is involved and how taking antibiotics or taking medications can make your gut microbiome situation even worse. It's like, you know, it really kind of is a trade-off that's like, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to do this for the short term, but then you might have, you know, lasting
1: effects afterwards. To go on antibiotics and, you know, affect my gut that way is just kind of silly, but.
0: Yeah. But, you know, it's your wedding and they're you know, talk about societal pressure. It's like, you've got to look perfect on your wedding day. Right. So, You mentioned that 2012 is when you were able to reverse that diagnosis of type 2 diabetes through diet, lifestyle, and metformin. What were some of the things that shifted for you? Like, What was it that kind of finally clicked for you in terms of the diet and lifestyle piece?
1: Yeah, so I would definitely say that diet-wise, I definitely had disordered eating. Mm. I became obsessed with counting calories. I used my fitness pal. I, you know, went on weight watchers for a time and I was very focused on calories in, calories out. And so I wish I had like better advice for people instead of, you know, that but but I really I had started out doing pretty well, just, you know, making sure that I had like balanced meals and that I was cutting down on processed stuff that I was, this is something that like diet culture loves, but making better choices. But then I just became obsessive about it. The more that I lost weight because so many people complimented me on my weight loss and I was you know, getting attention that I had never gotten before I was fitting into clothes that I had never fit into in my adult life and and so and and these compliments were meant to be good, you know, but when we compliment people on their bodies, it just reinforces that, oh, I'm better thinner, you know i'm there was something wrong with me when I was plus size, and now that i'm in more of like a mainstream size, that must be better, because people are saying that I look great, you know, they're amazed at my progress and, and things like that. And so diet wise, I, I became really obsessed with my diet. But I also became really fitness focused. And that's something that I think was a positive out of all of that. I'd also moved to Boston around that time. And I was just walking a lot more, I lived Mm -hmm. like a, a half a mile from the T from the subway. And so to get to school to get to work, I was walking a lot more than I would, I live in the Berkshires in Western Massachusetts. And so it's a lot of driving when you live in a rural area. And so I was getting a lot more daily movement, which I think helped, but I also began working with a personal trainer while I was out there. I lived with roommates that were really active. And so we would go for runs together or we would go to the gym together. And so I really started to like fitness and and learn things that I like to do with fitness rather than making it just about losing weight, even though I definitely had that mindset of, oh, I went out last night. So now I need to go to the gym to work it off. I like started, you know, one of my trainers started doing powerlifting and I really liked that. And then later in my adult life I I continued doing powerlifting. And so I think finding workouts that I really liked helped with with my blood sugar management.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned with people complimenting you on your weight loss and then sort of the pressure to maintain that, I think the less glamorous side of things is, is that everybody notices when you're losing weight, but then maintaining that loss is so much harder than losing the weight in the first place. And I remember a similar thing happened with me when I had mono in high school, and then I, I kind of had recurrent throat infections through college and Sophomore year of college, they, you know, took my tonsils out when I was home for Christmas break. And I couldn't eat and I lost like, I don't know, 15, 20 pounds. And I got back to school and we had auditions for the spring faculty show. And I performed more that year. I got cast in more pieces than I ever had before or ever did afterwards. And it, it is it's that reinforcement that like oh what you're doing you need to keep doing and that's where where the disordered behavior starts to come in because it's like i have to keep this up at all costs you know
1: oh yeah definitely i remember like losing weight and then starting to gain it all back and freaking out about it because i it, i felt this pressure of oh my God, all of these people think that I look so good. And now they're not going to think that way. They're going to think, you know, oh, she's, you know, the the plus size girl that's gaining weight again. You know, my body is just a plus size body. It's very comfortable (laughs) in its plus size. And I just learned that about myself. Are there things that I can do for my body that are healthy? yes, absolutely. I can eat well, I can move it, you know, but I'm just not meant to be a small person. And so to punish myself that way was tough and it was not sustainable.
0: Yeah. I was going to mention that word when you were talking about all of the, the diet changes that you had implemented. It's like, well, great, it's working, but how long can you keep going with that? Yeah. Um, It's so different when you're coming from a place of caring for your body instead of punishing it too.
1: Yes, absolutely. Hey there. So before we get
0: back to the rest of the episode, I just wanted to pop in real quick and tell you about a new workshop I've put together called PCOS Meal Prep Made Easy. If you're like most folks I hear from, you're confused and overwhelmed by all the conflicting info out there about what to actually eat with PCOS. And you may feel like you don't even know where to start. In this hour-long workshop, I break down what foods you want to include for PCOS and what you might want to consider avoiding or minimizing. And I share my simple three-step formula for planning meals with PCOS, The best part is it does not involve spending hours in the kitchen. Yes, you can absolutely incorporate this formula while cooking at home, but what's really great is that you can apply it no matter where you are, in a restaurant, getting takeout, at a family meal, or even while traveling. Head over to thehormonedietitian.com forward slash easy PCOS, all one word, to sign up now. Signing up is your first step to finally understanding how to eat to manage PCOS. All right, cool. I'll see you there. Let's get back to the episode. Yeah, so you mentioned you're pregnant and you're due at, at the end of April, which is really exciting. Do so you want to talk a little bit about the process of getting pregnant? Like when did you start trying to conceive? How did that go? You know, up to where you are now?
1: Yeah. So I, you know, have been with my husband for it'll be 10 years this October. And so about a year ago, we we've always well let me back up. One thing that is awkward about PCOS or, you know, this obligation that I kind of felt is when I met my husband, when we started to get serious and started to talk about getting married and everything like that, I felt like I kind of had to tell him like, Hey, I have PCOS and I might not be able to have kids. And that's just a large weight that I feel you know, knowing other women talking with them about their PCOS that a lot of us feel like, you know, we need to tell our partners or that. I know for me personally, it made me feel at times less like a woman or less, you know, worthy of all of the things because there might be this defect with me. And I think part of it too, is the way that we talk about infertility, right? Like we talk about it like it's a dead end when really there's so many variations of infertility and there's so many things that can be done along the way of fertility. So I just kind of wanted to mention that. So we kind of went into it knowing that, you know, it might not be a straightforward process for us. And I'm fortunate now that I have a really great OBGYN that is up to date as much, I think, as she can be about PCOS. And so because I had a previous diagnosis of PCOS, she said, we'll give you six months. And if you're not pregnant within six months, then we can kind of reevaluate and see if there's any interventions that we want to take. So I ended up getting pregnant, I want to say in like two months Naturally, which I was shocked by because for 10 plus years, I'd been living with this mindset of I'm going to need IVF and it's going to take rounds of it. And, you know, and so we were just like ecstatic to be pregnant naturally. And so, one thing, you know, that's kind of weird about pregnancy is like you take this test and you're all excited. And then you know, assuming that you want to be pregnant. I want to be mindful that right. not everyone, you know, not everyone that takes a pregnancy test is excited by the result, but for us, because we wanted to be pregnant, you know, I was very excited. So you call the doctor and then they're like, okay, we'll see you, you know, depending on when you get pregnant in a few weeks. Yep. And so, <laughs> so you're kind of just like sitting there okay. like, um, <laughs> what do I do? So You know, so I went for my normal, you know, checkup. They call it, you know, like the dating checkup or something. You basically take another pregnancy test at the doctor's office and then they go through this long list of things that you can't do anymore. (laughs) And so then I ended up going for my dating ultrasound. And unfortunately, with my first pregnancy at the dating ultrasound, I should have been eight weeks and two days. And I ended up being, the baby was six weeks and five days. So Mm -hmm. the baby, you know, hadn't progressed past that. And they told me that I would miscarry. And it honestly is like, you're watching a car crash. Like I felt out of my body at that point, because for me, all of the people that I had known that had miscarriages they had like an event, you know, right. it they wasn't started
0: bleeding and they really, yeah.
1: And I felt like, because so much focus, my entire PCOS journey had been on, if you can get pregnant. So I felt like, oh, we kind of got past this first hurdle and you know, I'm, I haven't bled. I haven't had cramps. So, going to this ultrasound and being given that news was really disarming. And miscarriage is just awful. You go through such a grieving process. And it's different because, you know, if you lose a loved one or a friend or a relative, it's like you have photos of them, you have memories of them. But mm-hmm. for us, we hadn't really told anyone that we were even pregnant. And so, to lose someone and like you never really met them, you just kind of had this dream of them, is just honestly terrible. One of the hardest things that I've gone through in my life, and and I naively thought too, you know, obviously a new miscarriage happens pretty pretty frequently. Mm-hmm. I just kind of thought like, oh, we'll be disappointed, but then at least I'll know that I can get pregnant. Like it always was just about. Can I get pregnant? Was the main focus of what I understood about fertility. And so I had a DNC just because it seemed like my body was not going to miscarry on its own. And then we took a really long break because I just knew that if I was going to go back into trying again, that mentally I had to be in a really good spot. And so we ended up taking probably almost a year off. Uh, and we ended up getting a Peloton. I'm like one of those annoying Peloton people that <laughs> could talk to you forever about how much I love it. <laughs> but you know, I just really focused on on movement. And actually that's that's during the time that I found you, Melissa, and took the root cause roadmap was um during this break. In between pregnancies, because I just felt like I wanted to go into a potential second pregnancy the healthiest that I could be, but also just understanding more about my PCOS. Because up until the point that I took the root cause roadmap, I really didn't know much about PCOS other than, okay, I'm getting regular periods. So that's a good sign, but I'm still having acne. I'm still, you know, losing hair. I'm still exhausted. And so there's, there's gotta be other things going on, but up until, you know, I, I found you, none of those things were discussed. It was always, oh, okay. You're getting your period. So your PCOS must be mild.
0: Yeah. I'm so glad you found me during that time, you know, when you were taking that time to focus on your health and do it in a sustainable way, which was different from previous times you had focused on your PCOS. What were some of your big takeaways from what you learned about PCOS that you hadn't known before?
1: that, I mean, honestly, that it can be managed <laughs> because really, I mean, before taking the class, I just kind of thought like, oh, this is just something that's going to run wild for the rest of my life. And, you know, I can get on birth control, but knowing that I wanted to be pregnant again, that was kind of counterproductive. and And to be honest, birth control really didn't work for my symptoms anyway, I get migraines. And so I can't be on estrogen birth control as it is. And so I never found birth control to really help any of my PCOS symptoms, but that, you know, that there was a blood sugar relationship with PCOS. Like I kind of always guessed that because PCOS and type two diabetes, um, and insulin resistance are so closely linked, but you know, that there was relationship with that and that the more that I could ban it, balance my blood sugar. Now that I've moved past type two diabetes, the more that I could help my PCOS and just a lot of the things that you teach in your root cause roadmap about, you know, the protein fat fiber for your, for your plate and that sleep and stress reduction can play a role in balancing your PCOS. I just, I really gained so much and so much that is easily integratable. You know, it takes time to form these habits, but it's not like I had to move mountains or add chocolate syrup to a shake to (laughs) be able to do it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's one of the things that's really important to me is that, you know, the the nutrition and lifestyle tips that I share, while some of them can be difficult to implement, particularly the stress management and getting enough sleep, um, the diet part really, or the, you know, way of, I use the word diet in terms of way of eating or pattern of eating and the the way of eating, you can adapt no matter what your, your preferred foods are or where you are. It's like, you don't have to carry those special little colored boxes with you around. You could just kind of eyeball it and plug things into the places on your plate and it works.
1: Yes. Yes. And if like one more person told me that going vegan would change my entire life, (laughs) I was going to go crazy I just will never, ever give up cheese. And I was very glad that I didn't have to when following the root cause roadmap and that it didn't, you know, its it really is about a holistic approach. It really is about making it sustainable for your life. So I didn't feel like if I indulged in something or if I didn't get movement for a couple of days that there was like a punishment or, you know, it's just like, okay, this is, life. And, you know, I know that these things are good for me. So I need to try better tomorrow to integrate some of these practices into life.
0: Yeah. And more importantly than, than things being good for you, they make you feel good too, you know, like there's almost an immediate reward to, getting enough sleep or eating a balanced meal or moving your body there's like that sort of instant positive reinforcement yeah i'm doing something good for my body you know
1: yes i mean honestly i had pretty much no acne and like i had mentioned since you know puberty I had cystic acne and in one following the root cause roadmap, it pretty much went away. I would get like a blemish here or there, but I mean, part of it is probably just the masks, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I think that is reward enough that you can feel good and that you can integrate these things and, and make them part of your everyday life.
0: Yeah. Part of, you know, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, your location and how it's been sort of difficult to access treatment in a a rural location. And honestly, part of the reason why I developed the course in the first place was because, you know, I'm only one person. (laughs) Uh, I can only work with people in certain states. Um, And so taking all of my protocols and all of my methods and making them available to people no matter where they live um, was definitely part of my motivation for developing a course in the first place, just to to be able to help more people with that information. So talk a little bit about that. So So did you grow up in the Berkshire area?
1: I did. Yes. So I grew up in the Berkshires and like I said, I grew up in a in a middle class family, and so I'm fortunate that at times when I've needed to see specialists outside of the area, I've been able to do so. But with PCOS, I mean, there really was never like a "we're going to refer you out somewhere" because it just kind of seemed like somewhere else didn't have the answers. Or in and, and my PCOS has always been viewed, I think, by doctors as mild because mm-hmm. i have been able to you know reverse the diabetes and i i have been able to achieve a monthly period naturally and and everything like that and so i mean i honestly from the time of middle school i would say my mom was advocating for doctors to investigate a little bit further about why i wasn't getting a period why i was having Cystic acne, why I was gaining weight so rapidly. And doctors just kind of pointed to, oh, well, because she's obese. And I think that one of the challenges that rural areas have is that we have an older population of doctors. There mm-hmm. aren't a lot of young doctors that are getting trained, you know, in the best hospitals, training hospitals in the world. And choosing to come to rural areas because they could work in New York City or Boston or Chicago, you know, somewhere fun, that would be fun for a young doctor and a place that can probably pay them a lot more than a small rural hospital could pay them. So I know that hospitals are having a tremendously hard time recruiting new doctors. And I think that has an impact on our treatment, because if you've been, you know, doing the same thing for 30 years and you have a caseload that's huge because there aren't enough doctors to share the caseload, then you're probably not taking, you know, continuing ad credits in something like PCOS because there's things that you need to be learning about that are affecting A greater population of the people that you're treating. But what we do know is that there's so many women out there that have PCOS that have been not been diagnosed. So I would make the argument that PCOS is definitely something worth studying. But you know, I just think that there's there's not a lot of people to choose from where in a larger area it's like, okay, this practice or this doctor is not working for you. I'm gonna you know, call up this one that I found that works with my insurance. That's the other thing too, right? Is if you're fortunate enough to have health insurance, which I live in Massachusetts, so we have, you know, really good insurance.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: But you know, if you can find someone else that works in your plan, are they going to be better than, than the doctor that you're seeing?
0: Yeah, it's hard. I'm actually, starting to discover this for the first time myself, because we moved from the New Hampshire Seacoast, which is, you know, a much more bigger city area over there, or at least, you know, pretty close driving distance to larger cities. And we moved over to the west side of New Hampshire. And it's, yeah, really kind of the first time that I'm I'm dealing with this. I did deal with it a little bit on the seacoast where I was looking for a second opinion from a specialist and, you know, I was willing to drive down to Boston to get that second opinion, but my insurance was New Hampshire. So like it wasn't going to work with my insurance. And then here, you know, we are fortunate that we are under an hour drive from Dartmouth-Hitchcock, which is a fantastic hospital but it's still like if you have anything beyond primary care you have to go up there and I recently actually just discovered this with with veterinary care too. We have a fantastic vet for our cats here, but we had a a veterinary emergency a couple of weeks ago and we had to drive down to Northampton, Mass. So over an hour to take our cat to an emergency vet because there's, there's not one here. And it's just, you know, and then the one down there was so overloaded because they're like the only one for- you know, an hour and a half radius. So it was a seven hour wait to get our cat in with the emergency vet, which is just, wow. you know, mind blowing in the case of an actual medical emergency that you have to wait seven hours for care. So it's definitely a problem. And I, I definitely can see your perspective that it it is hard to recruit new young talent to come work in more rural areas.
1: Yeah. And I'm very fortunate. My OB is actually in Vermont and I'm very fortunate that my insurance transfers over there. And I now go to an OB that's younger and, and their practice is up to date on things. And, you know, even like now that I'm kind of looking into birth and different philosophies of labor and, you know skin to skin time and cutting the umbilical cord and all those fun things everything that they've mentioned they it has been kind of the most up to date cutting edge even you know for me what was really important was continuing exercise in pregnancy and there's kind of like this old school thought of don't get your heart rate up you know mm-hmm. don't lift weights don't and and so when i had my positive Pregnancy test for my my second pregnancy. This current one, I kind of like was doing low impact rides and doing like arms and light weights because I didn't want to push anything. And when I met with my doctor, she was like, "Oh yeah, that's kind of old school." She's like, "If you were doing it before, you can continue doing it, and your body is going to tell you if you're pushing it too hard or if something doesn't feel right." And that's just such a good philosophy to have in general of listening to your body. And, you know, and I think back to my PCOS and thank goodness that my mom kept advocating on behalf of me and trusting my body and trusting that something wasn't right because it took, I mean, from probably, you know, when I was like 11 or 12 to 21 to get that PCOS diagnosis. And then I'm 34. I met you, Melissa, when I was 33. So then from 21 to 33 to learn how to actually treat my symptoms of PCOS and take this holistic approach. And, and that's just far too long for women to go through something that affects really every aspect of our health, our mental health, our physical health. It's just, we, we got to do better <laughs>
0: yeah absolutely. Um so speaking of your your current pregnancy, how's that going? Is everything, you know, everything looking good? Everything on target? How are you feeling?
1: Yeah, everything's really good. I've knock on wood. I've felt really good all throughout my pregnancy. I've been able to stay active. I, as I had mentioned, I'd been tested twice for gestational diabetes around. I want to say around 14 or 15 weeks, and then around 26, 27 weeks. And my blood sugars were awesome. They were, you know, in the normal range and a good range. They test every woman for preeclampsia because, you know, it really can happen to everyone. And something that I didn't really realize before I got pregnant is that preeclampsia and gestational diabetes is really just the way that your body is kind of responding to pregnancy. So you could have none of the, no issues with your blood sugar before pregnancy, no issues with your blood sugar, blood pressure before pregnancy. And then all of a sudden in pregnancy, for whatever reason, your body reacts differently. So, but, you know, knowing that I have PCOS and that does put us at kind of an elevated risk for gestational diabetes and preeclampsia. They've been kind of monitoring me for that, but everything's come back good so far. I'm 30 weeks. So getting down to to the the single digit of weeks soon and everything's been good.
0: Good. How has it been emotionally being pregnant after a loss?
1: It's scary. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's you know I think every with every pregnancy you're gonna worry about mm-hmm. the health and well being and the and there's so many things you know there's so much access to information that it's so easy to you know join a pregnancy app and then go on the message board and all of these people are talking about things that you're like I didn't even know that was a thing but I will say that after loss. I tried to go into this pregnancy being really positive about it and, you know, trying not to bring that previous loss into this pregnancy, but you can't really help it. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. it's an experience that I've had and, you know, one that I was obviously worried that it would happen again. And, and one of the things that I kind of thought that would happen was that Once I had reached that like 12, 13 week mark of your miscarriage risk kind of dramatically decreases, that I would feel more comfortable or that I would feel some sort of relief. And I just found that that didn't happen. It was like there's always another benchmark that I'm like, okay, we just need to get here. And then I'll feel more comfortable. So after that thirteen week mark, then it was like, oh, we just have to get to the anatomy scan, and then after the anatomy scan, it's like, oh, we just need to get to the third trimester. And I kind of feel that now I'm really starting to settle in, into my pregnancy. Like I was worried for a long time to make a registry. I was like, oh, we mm-hmm. we can't, you know, we can't assume that the baby's gonna make it and and like i wasn't buying anything for the nursery and and lately um i've been probably buying too much. so <laughs> i'm finding that you know now that baby's closer to being here i'm starting to feel more comfortable and and like i had said before i think too with pcos there's so much focus on fertility and things like that that you kind of don't trust your body all the mm-hmm. time and So I think that coupled with pregnancy loss after my pregnancy loss, I didn't trust my body again, either. Like I was like, we got pregnant and then, you know, I, I wasn't able to carry this baby and, and miscarriage happens for a variety of different reasons and it's never anyone's fault. And, and I actually, because I had a DNC, I was able to test the tissue, which is something that not. A lot of women are, are able to do. And, and they found that, you know, it just kind of was one of these things where mm. genetically, for whatever reason, the something didn't add up. And, and it, I, I found too, after loss that, you know, it's so hard with social media because it's like one of those things where it's like, once you notice something, then it's like all you can see, you know? And so after. Our loss, it was like everyone I knew was getting pregnant, and every mm-hmm. every post that I saw was like another announcement or another person having a a baby. And and one of the things that us women with PCOS don't have the luxury of is accidentally getting pregnant, or you know, you can accidentally get pregnant with PCOS, but but that there's so much emphasis on your fertility that I I started to get kind of annoyed, I guess, with these people that just would be like, oh, whoops, you know, we got pregnant or it just took one ovulation test and, you know, we're having a baby And, and not that it's their fault. I mean, that it's not their fault that they haven't had to go through this journey, but I wish that everyone's journey was more normalized and that there was more of a focus on sensitivity around pregnancy. You can absolutely be excited about your pregnancy. It is so exciting, but being sensitive to not everyone's journey is going to look the same is something that I'm hoping that our society will get better over time. And actually, Chrissy Teigen had lost her son right before we had our first pregnancy loss. And her sharing her journey, although different than mine, was so tremendously helpful. And that's why I've tried to be so open about my miscarriage and also my PCOS is because it helped me so much to be able to see and hear of another woman and the journey that she's gone through and that, you know, you look at someone like Chrissy Teigen and it's like, she's a model and she's married to a famous singer and she has beautiful children. And you know, that, that like, not everything is perfect was helpful for me to see. And, and I try to be very sensitive to the fact that I am a woman with PCOS Who is able to get pregnant naturally? And that's not an experience that many women with PCOS will have. And it's not assumed that if we want to have a second baby, that it's the same experience that we'll have moving forward.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree about the celebrities, too. Like the more people are, speaking out, I mean, celebrities, but also normal women, you know, speaking out about their miscarriages or their, their struggles with fertility, you know, it makes a difference and it raises the level of awareness so that, you know, who was it? Was it Justin Timberlake who made the stupid, no, Justin Bieber. I always confuse the, the Justins uh, who made like the stupid pregnancy, April Fool's joke. And it's just like, so insensitive. You know, it's like those are the kind of things that shouldn't be happening anymore.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And just being mindful of the the way that we share, you know, our pregnancies that that, you know, for for some people, yeah, like sometimes it just takes one really good night and you end up with a baby. But for some people, it's it's years and years of of wanting and wishing and hoping and that both journeys are beautiful and, you know, worthy of, of sharing. And also, if you decide
0: never to have children, you know, if you're child free by choice or child free, not by choice, that is a hundred percent valid too. And it doesn't make you less of a woman for sure.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So you've actually gotten, involved in some PCOS advocacy recently too. Why is that important to you?
1: Yeah, so I have a masters in public affairs and a bachelor's in political science and so I've been involved in politics for for a long time and you know and professionally I've done advocacy for different things but For me personally, for PCOS, it's so important because sharing our personal stories can be tremendously impactful when making decisions about what to fund. You know, there's only so much money that can go around and our congressional leaders or our state leaders hear from people every single day about what needs to be funded and why it's important. But, if they're able to see the face of someone that's struggling with PCOS and how it's impacted their lives, that can really move the mark that can stay in their minds for when they're thinking of what to fund and prioritizing it. And you know, one thing that I wanted to mention, too, is that you don't need a degree in political science or you know, a master's or anything like that. You really just need the ability to share your story. And that's something that we all are really well-versed in, right? <laughs> we all know the ways that PCOS has affected us and the, the reason why it needs to be prioritized. And so I'd be happy to talk with anyone anytime about why they would you know, why they should advocate for PCOS. But I know that the PCOS challenge has some great trainings and, you know, advocacy volunteer opportunities. And they also have their advocacy day on Capitol Hill, which for right now is virtual. And I'm hoping that we can kind of, as we move out of COVID, continue virtually because it's so accessible to everyone when you don't have to Get on a plane or drive to DC when you can just log on to your computer.
0: Yeah, I got to participate last year and I'm I'm participating again this year. And I agree. It's just, it's such, you know, I think it's important for healthcare practitioners like myself to be able to be there speaking about the condition. But I I think what's more impactful is the people with PCOS sharing their stories. Um, It's really an emotional but beautiful day. It's very fun. It's nice to connect with other people. It feels like you're doing at least something small to make a difference. And generally, you're received very well by the Congress people's offices, their staff, you know, and and making a difference. Um, many of them have never heard of PCOS before, so um, it is important to to advocate because of the very very small percentage of research dollars that go towards a condition that affects you know upwards of twenty percent of women in the country.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned to the getting to meet other women with PCOS or. Other healthcare practitioners are put for the national day, you're put in teams by your state. And so I was able to meet people across Massachusetts and some doctors that are doing research on PCOS. And so it's just a really awesome day to connect with others. And I agree, you know, I think that the staff or the Congress people really listened to our stories and really felt them. Like one started to tear up and she had struggled with fibroids. So different than PCOS, but she just said, you know, I feel like this sounds so much like my journey as well. And this is, and it was her first time of hearing about PCOS. And and so our stories really touched her, you know, moved her to to tears. And and so it matters. It it matters for us to share our stories and and um spend one day a year just kind of advocating for ourselves. I'm I'm a doer. Like I don't like to be told something and then not be able to take action on it. So it feels good for me <laughs> to be able to have one day a year at least where I feel like I'm doing something to to try to move PCOS forward and and you know we don't know the sex of the baby, but if it's a girl then she could potentially have PCOS. And I don't want to have to fight the same battle to access care for her as I've had to do. So I'm hoping that the next generation of women won't have to fight and go through all of these hoops and have misinformation fed to them about PCOS.
0: I'm already seeing that if it if it makes you feel better, you know, the the women who are are mothers who are my age who have children now. Um, I think because, you know, we grew up talking about periods with our girlfriends and what's normal and what's not. And, you know, awareness definitely has gone up around when there might be a problem. And so I've actually been finding for for girls who are, you know, in the fourteen to sixteen range, they are getting diagnosed at that age now because their moms, who are, you know, my and your age, are like marching them in to the doctor the second that there is something wrong with their cycles. So I, I do think that it's getting better, and I hope that it will continue to get better. But really, you know, what what we need research for is is the actual answers. It's like, oh, what what causes this? What actually works to treat this? You know, that's where we really need more research funding. So I'm so grateful that you were able to participate last year too. And I'm sure I'll see you again this year on the day. They tend to lump our little new england states together so it should be should be another great event um so i could keep you here chatting all day about your journey but i do i do want to be mindful of time and wrap up so i always like to end with what's one thing that you want people with pcos to take away from this episode
1: yeah well thank you so much melissa for having me and as you can tell i can talk about pcos all day. <laughs> and so I appreciate the time. I would say one thing that I want people with PCOS to take away from the episode is just to give yourself grace. That's not something that I've always been the best about. But, you know, we've talked so much about diet culture and about just the outside influences and there's definitely been times where I've felt like I was never going to be able to get a handle on my PCLS, and there's been times when I've just been really hard on myself for, you know, not eating the way that I think that I should, or not getting enough sleep or not exercising or, you know, exercising too much because I missed a couple of days. And as we learned in, you know, your root cause roadmap, those stresses are not good for our PCOS either. And so taking the time to just be patient with yourself, we're living with a chronic lifelong condition at the end of the day. And so, you know, you can be doing everything perfectly and one of your symptoms might pop up again and not taking that as you're doing something wrong, but just really getting back to the basics of what was working for you before, or taking the time to really integrate these, I don't want to call them habits because they really are lifelong skills. That takes time and you have the rest of your life to do it. And you'll start to notice little changes along the way. So I would say that, yes, give yourself grace is the thing that I'd like people to walk away with.
0: Love that. It's, you know, you're, you're in it for the long haul. So you really have to pace yourself when it comes to making changes that you can live with for a lifetime. So I really, I think that is a perfect way to end the episode. And I just want to thank you again so, so much for taking the time to come on and share your story with me. I think, you know, it's going to make an impact on a lot of women who, who maybe are where you were a few years ago and give them hope for what's possible. So I, I really appreciate it. And thank you so much.
1: Yes. Thank you. That's it
0: for this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hormonally Yours with The Hormone Dietitian. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could open up the podcast app you're probably using to listen to this episode right now and leave a quick rating or review. Your reviews help this podcast get seen by more women who could benefit from the information I share here. Stay tuned for our next episode and in the meantime, stay balanced.